Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. I'm your host Ian. And I'm Daniel. And this is the podcast where we're looking at small but great moments in movies. And this is our second ever episode. This week we are going to be looking at the late 2010s to pick our movies from. So last yep. time we did the early 2010s, now we're looking at the late 2010s. Mm-hmm. Back by popular demand, we're just skipping over the middle of the decade because, you know, nothing but crap came out in those years anyway. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. Especially <laughs> 2015, what a junk year of movies Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, I think it'll be a fun uh, counterpoint to last week. I know I didn't really think too much about comparing them directly, but there's some interesting parallels i think to last week's picks from each of our lists and some choices that are kind of very different but gives a good general overview especially people who maybe don't know us about where our tastes sort of lie the spectrum of our interests as it were um yeah so do you want to get us started with your first film and your first moment of the week you bet so let's start it off we're going to start off in 2018 and I'm going with one of the biggest movies of that year. And actually, <clears throat> my moment is, this is not a diamond in the rough moment. It's a pretty huge moment of the film. But I just, <laughs> I had to mention it just because I love it so much. And so it's A Star is Born, which came out in 2018. Uh, and that's with Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga. And so the moment, of course, is probably the biggest moment in the movie, which is where she actually steps onto stage and then goes out to sing um what's the name of that song shallow or the shallows one of the two i think it's shallow i think it's a shallow yeah and the moment is like specifically when you actually see her make the decision to go out onto the stage because up until that point she's she's kind of like a i mean she's a songwriter but she's not at the point where she's actually letting other people hear her songs she just happened to have this chance encounter with uh, Bradley Cooper's, who's a huge country music star. And then he brings her to the concert and he tells her that he's going to sing her song and that she should come out and join him, which of course she refuses to do at first. But as he goes out and as he starts the song, Bradley Cooper, who's also directed the movie, does a really good job of like bringing you into the mindset of the characters, I find. And you're kind of going through the same thought process she is. And it's I kind of equate it to, you know, that moment when we're kids and we decide that, hey, we're going to take that jump off the highest diving board into the pool. And when you're up there and you're just about to do it, you're like, yeah, I don't want to do this. But (laughs) but then there's that moment where you just, okay, fine, I'm doing it. And then you jump. Right. And I feel like this is that happening in a movie and it kind of brings back all those ideas from a kid when you're like you actually push yourself to do something that you find incredibly frightening but it pays off and i just i just find this a really powerful moment i i think that they they sold it and i bought it Mm -hmm. right lady gaga i think is a she really surprised me in this movie because i'm not I'm not really a pop music fan. I don't know much about her music except for what I hear on the radio here and there. Uh, But I think they had to pick somebody like her because they had to pick somebody with a lot of 
actual singing chops. But she also came off really genuine, I felt. Um, I don't know. Are you a fan of this movie, Dan? Yeah, I kind of love this film. I don't think I'm as big a fan as you are, but I know I thought it was excellent uh, when I saw it in theaters, and I thought it was excellent again on a recent rewatch. It's a film that, and I think we've talked about this before, it was kind of easy for cinephiles with a capital C to kind of take for granted because it is a unabashed sort of crowd pleaser. Um, and it's, uh, it's a film that looks like an easy entertainment. So it's easy to just not really give it the full respect it deserves, but it's a really beautifully made film. And the performances you mentioned are, especially Lady Gaga's in this moment, uh, excellent. And I think it's also, you mentioned how it's not necessarily a small moment, but I do think there's something small in how it's presented in terms of the fact that uh, Bradley Cooper and uh, the cinematographer, who I believe is Matthew Libatique, keep the camera on the stage with right. them. So we get the shots of, or we get glimpses of the massive crowd, and we obviously hear them on the soundtrack, but it's not playing up the spectacle it keeps us intimate with the characters which if you consider how uh that same year the concert scenes in like bohemian rhapsody were shot where it's like it's all about the spectacle of like look at queen look at the massive crowd and this scene gives us an amazing musical performance without losing sight of character and without indulging in just spectacle so i think it definitely even if it is in some ways a really big moment narratively i still think it fits what we're doing here because of how it's uh presented yeah and i think that because it's such an intimate moment it actually feels way bigger than than that massive scene in bohemian rhapsody right it it feels like an epic moment but Mm -hmm. it is it's like it's her moment and it very Mm -hmm. clearly comes off as this is her chance this is she's taking this opportunity finally and in that idea in that very personal idea it feels big yeah. yeah i would agree completely um yeah it's definitely a moment too where i think partly because the film does such a good job of like having us identify with that character with ali for so long that uh you know uh the enormity of the moment even if it isn't totally emphasized by cooper uh as a director it still hits us because of the context and the character relationship right. um yeah, interesting, interesting moment to be sure. Um, I know you're a big fan of the film in general. Yeah, yeah, I am. It, that, and that moment just, like, I really do find that, I know it's early on. It, it is kind of early for it to be the high point of the movie, but I do feel like it is, just because it seems like everything so far is built up to that. And mm-hmm. then everything in the movie afterwards comes from that, right? So it, it is a pivotal scene. Yeah, and it's kind of the most crucial scene because uh, in so many ways it the story hinges on that scene. You need to you you pointed out you bought it. You know, you need to buy that, you know, her apprehension and that she would still take the leap and that that leap would work. And so it really like it's and a lot of it's done in one shot if I recall correctly. Yeah, like the camera doesn't so. cut too much. No. So, uh it is sort of the the pivotal moment of the film uh and yet it's presented with this uh, intimacy which the film does a lot i find mm-hmm. actually like at the end i don't want i mean it's spoilers but also it's like the fourth version of the movie going back <laughs> to 1937 so yeah. after bradley cooper's character dies and they have the tribute concert um 
you know, you have the sort of enormity of that performance, and then it cuts to them rehearsing the song together and him singing that part. Uh, so it's something that Cooper, I think, does throughout the film is is sort of balance the scale of the story with the intimacy of the characters, and it's probably the first uh, time uh, that the film does that is the the moment you're highlighting. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of my favorite uh, scenes from that year for sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, it's good because I don't have any moments from 2018, so. Uh, we now have all of, I guess, the, the range of late 2010s we had now have covered between the two of us. So my moment comes from Phantom Thread from 2017. Uh, I was, to give some context about this film in terms of how I was going into it. So I'm one of the many Paul Thomas Anderson devotees. Um, I tend to love almost everything he's made. And I was like, kind of rabid about this movie before it came out. I was emailing like local theaters like once a week, like <laughs> when are you guys getting Phantom Thread? Um, and uh, so I went in with a lot of sort of excitement and expectations, which does lead to sort of intense viewing. I don't think I remember like not even getting like any snacks or anything. And my girlfriend asking if I want anything. And it's like, no, I'm here for Paul, <laughs> which is a bit bizarre, but um, it's a film that's kind of made of, little intricate moments like there is sort of big height and dramatic moments too but so much of it especially compared to something like there will be blood uh, or magnolia is about like really small uh, nuanced character beats um but my favorite moment or at least the moment i want to highlight today is more of like a quirk in editing and uh staging of scenes so some story context reynolds woodcock who's this dressmaker uh we learn early on in the film that his mother died when he was pretty young, and um, that grief still weighs fairly heavily on him. And there's an element of mystery to that past because him and his sister, they both seem a little off. So you kind of wonder, and the film also cribs a lot from Rebecca, which also has a uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca, uh, not just like the person Rebecca, um, <laughs> which is also about a wealthy person courting a much younger woman and a sort of mystery, uh, mysterious tragedy in their life. So you kind of, as a viewer, are somewhat led to suspect there might be something in this past. And we finally get a sort of payoff at a moment where Reynolds is delirious with sickness, and he's in bed having, like, fits of fever. And the scene uh, sort of, it starts with a close-up shot of this room where Reynolds is in, he's in bed, and we get this close-up of a chair in the center of the frame in the foreground. And the room is very dimly lit. We again get a sort of reverse shot to Reynolds in bed. And it's this fairly tight close-up with his face, center of the frame. And then it cuts back to the chair. And your eyes are drawn to that chair because we've been the last several shots looking at the center of the screen. But in the background, just to the left of frame, there is a woman in a dress. And it takes you a second to clue in that she's there, and you quickly realize, oh, it's the ghost of his mother. Um, there's no supernatural oh. elements to the film, so it's in context his delusion, not like an actual ghost. But the way the scene's constructed and the way it plays out, it is very much like a spiritual sort of uh, ghostly encounter. And what I love about it is how the really simple uh, shot choices and just very subtle framing lead to this moment of genuine horror 
in a story that is not a horror movie at all because it's a fairly intense scene going into it because you know he's sick and Johnny Greenwood's score in this moment has a very just slightly off uncomfortable vibe but then when you clue in that oh there's a ghost in the back of the frame it really like takes you aback I remember texting a buddy afterwards who's like a big horror movie aficionado and he was telling me I think that's the scariest moment I've seen in a movie this year um in part because it's so unexpected and I really love in general when non-horror films have singular moments of terror I think it adds so much more because it's singular um, and part of what I find so cool about the scene too, is it's in the context of the film, even though it's at first presented as a moment of terror and it's got a, uh, a haunting quality and it is a haunting scene, the actual scene itself kind of undercuts the mystery of Reynolds's past where he starts talking to his mom and he's saying things like, you know, are you here? Are you always here with me? And eventually he just says, I just miss you. It's as simple as that. So it's almost the film directly telling you as an audience, there's really no grand mystery with his mom. He just loved her and now she's gone and he's, you know, lived his whole life since missing her. So it's, it's wrapping in all these complex feelings of like being scary and haunting and tragic, but also in a weird way, kind of relieving because it, it takes the edge off that mystery. Um, I don't know, there's a lot <laughs> going on in this scene, and there's more to be said about the way that uh, Alma, who is Reynolds' girlfriend at this point, uh, and eventually wife, how she factors into the scene and and how that scene informs their relationship, especially yeah. with the whole sickness be- stuff. Because if I'm rem- it's been a while since I've seen it, but if I'm remembering right, that's kind of where the power shift happens, isn't it? Yes. Between the two characters. Yeah, that's a good thing you bring up, because Reynolds is very domineering and controlling very everything in his way but this is the first time or one of the first times that he's been very vulnerable and very in need of uh someone else to to help him and that tenderness really starts to inform the relationship and yeah it also really throws the power dynamics because again the film invites comparisons to rebecca where Lawrence olivier has all the power in the story but at this point the film starts to shift and it becomes really much more of a struggle, um, which is also something else is like that vulnerability, which is so palpable here becomes really important to the story. One of my favorite scenes later on is when uh, Reynolds has a bit of a breakdown and he straight up says to his sister, referring to something that's happened, it's hurt my feelings. And I was thinking when I saw it, wow, I can't think of too many movies where a man has said this hurt my feelings. And then I thought, I can't think of too many movies where anyone has said this hurt my feelings. Like I've seen that yeah. expressed, but to have a character just say that, like unironically that, too, you, you hear it ironically, right? But yes. Yeah, yeah. As a source of mockery, <clears throat> but just to be so open with that. And I think it's something that like everyone has said to someone else that they cared about, like this thing you did hurt my feelings as a sort of ultimate being open and honest and transparent and vulnerable. Um, and we don't get that that declaration in this scene, but it really sets the stage for that moment later. And yeah, it's really scary that a ghost just pops up halfway through the dress movie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, would you say this is like on par with the ghost scene in Three Men and a Baby? <laughs> <laughs> I have not seen Three Men and a Baby. It's, I can't remember. It's either that one or the sequel, and there's a big like cult thing about there being a ghost showing up in the window once. <laughs> oh, 
right. Yes, I, <clears throat> I've heard about this. I don't, I don't think it has quite the dramatic uh, context <laughs> of this one, though. It's definitely an example of uh, a horror scene in a movie you're not expecting one. Yeah, so. that's for sure. Although it's funny you say that because I do think it's worth comparing to how other films depict ghosts because it reminds me a lot of The Shining and how Stanley Kubrick talked has talked about how in movies that show ghosts, it's like that translucent effect. And he, he talked about how, but most people, when they say they've seen a ghost, they don't describe seeing that type of figure. They just describe seeing a person right. who is dead or who shouldn't be there. supposed to be, yeah. Right, and I think this nails that perfectly. And again, it makes it scarier because she's so normal, you don't see her right away, and that's what makes it so, like, oh my god, what's happening? Hmm. Um, oh man, I would I would give anything, because now that I've seen the movie and I know it's coming, every time I see that scene, my eyes are already drifting to <laughs> where she is in the frame before it even cuts, but that first time in the theater was like, I still remember just sitting back and just my head going back and my eyes wide. And it was just an amazing, totally unexpected moment in a film that com- at consistently surprised and, uh, I don't know, enchanted me at the risk of sounding very pretentious. Yeah. You've got to be a, a, a pretty confident filmmaker to throw something like that into, into a movie like this. There's no mm. doubt about it. Good point. Yeah, so that's my moment. Are you a fan yeah. of Phantom Thread? Yeah, I've only seen it once, but I did really enjoy it. I thought Daniel Day-Lewis killed it, <laughs> as, he us- yeah. as he usually does. If yeah. it's truly to be his last performance, I mean, that's a shame for us, but it's a pretty good one to to go out on. Yeah. All right. Yeah, well, I'll let you take he over. He says it all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, I'm going to, I'm also, actually, I'm going to jump ahead to 19, no, sorry. I'm getting mixed up with the name of the movie. Uh, 2019. <laughs> The movie is 1917. So 1917 is a World War I movie. And, of course, it's really famous for being, you know, one shot, right? I mean, it's, or at least designed to look like it's all one shot, which is the, the hook for it. And when I saw it, you know, I was very captivated by that. And I kind of thought, okay, this is really cool, but it's basically just like an action movie in the dressing of a war movie. And then I saw it the second time, and when I saw it the second time, I started to see a lot of things in it that I didn't really pick up on the the time before. And I realized that it's, no, this has actually got a lot to say about war. And it's it has lots to say at the level of, you know, regular foot soldiers in the war. And the moment that I want to talk about is a moment where the main character is kind of sneaking his way through one of the war-torn French towns. And he comes across a couple of Germans who are on patrol but have been drinking. And he tries to sneak by them, but he runs into one accidentally. And so so he's got to basically tackle this guy so he doesn't raise the alarm. And he ends up having to having to choke him out. And then he sees the other guy come. And what he does is he gets up and runs, knocks out the other guy, and then takes off. Seems like a pretty straightforward setup for a chase scene. But what I saw in that is the soldier's decision to not kill, is basically. Because what I what I really find captivating with 1917 is that. It feels like it's just regular people thrown in a war, which is exactly what happened, right? 
if I put myself into into a World War situation, obviously, as everybody would be, you'd be worried about dying all the time. But I would also be extremely frightened about the idea of having to actually take someone else's life. And I think this movie gets that across really well. Now, the interesting thing is he actually does kill one of the Germans in this scene. There's a it's in a struggle, right? But he starts off not wanting to do that. He basically slams the German up against the wall, covers his mouth so he won't scream. And I don't think he knows what his next plan is, but he doesn't want to kill this German. He wants to figure out some way that he can get through this, leaving him alive. But then the German calls for it and then they start fighting. And in the struggle, he basically has to has to kill the German. But then what's really interesting is when the second one comes, and the second one hasn't quite noticed what's going on yet, but he's walking closer and closer and closer. And now our main character has the decision again to kill or not kill. And he chooses not to. Because what he could have done is gone to get his rifle, which fell not too far away, and of course shoot the, shoot the German coming by. But he chooses instead to actually sacrifice his gun so that he doesn't kill this guy. And he just instead runs and knocks him out and then takes off. And I don't know, that just really hit me. Just the idea that somebody would consciously make the choice not to kill in this war movie where normally, you know, they would just, most soldiers would just take the gun and shoot. It's very clear that he is trying to get through this as honorably as he can whilst keeping himself alive. That's really beautifully put. And I think it gets to one of the core tensions that makes 1917 uninteresting and somewhat fraught uh, movie to talk about, because as you point out, and especially on a first time, it plays as almost like a gravity esque sort of parade of uh, tense set pieces. Right. And, and the, it's an exciting movie to watch. Um, but the way the film treats uh, death and the potential of it in this scene and in others, as in the really sort of pivotal death scene of the story, which I actually won't spoil because if you haven't seen it, it really is uh, amazing. Yeah. But is the sort of awkwardness and um, uh, sort of reality of that. And the there is, in spite of the fact that it's this sort of thrilling movie to watch that lacks maybe the, I don't know, the same level of... Uh, critique of war or at least overt critique that you would see in something like passive glory or all quiet on the western front there is a sort of um respect for human life and also for uh, an understanding of the awkwardness of young men totally unprepared scrambling to make life and death decisions and yeah. uh how sometimes making the honorable decision is the harder one that might end up costing you more because there aren't really sort of ground rules for it for this type of thing. So, right. yeah, I think you, that's a really uh, pivotal moment. I don't even think, like, when I first saw your list, I even knew um, what that was from the film. But hearing you describe it, it does come back to me and uh, I think is a really well-selected scene. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's important that he actually has to leave his gun behind in order to do that. Because mm -hmm. from that point on, he's basically, you know... <laughs> weaponless and he's and he's on his own but he made mm -hmm. that choice as quickly as it was he 
you can tell that he consciously made that choice because it would have been very easy to make the other choice instead. Which is another thing that's important, I think, is is having to put one's gun behind is it takes away even further any element of this film being a power fantasy. Even if it is right. exciting still, it's always because of identifying with the vulnerability of the main character. Even a movie like... Uh, as a comparison for a movie that doesn't do this, something like American Sniper, which I know people have argued is anti-war. I'm somewhat dubious on the degree that it actually is. Yeah, but too. we spend most of the movie identifying with the character who has that power to choose who lives and dies. Um, and this film, I think, kind of wisely takes that away. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it's worth... I think maybe I'm not taking an aside to say it's probably a really good thing this movie didn't win Best Picture. Um, not that it isn't a really good movie, but it, like as you bring it up, my sort of thinking on it uh, initially was like, oh yes, 1917, that really solid movie, really well-made movie from uh, 2019. Whereas if it had won Best Picture, I think the not that I would dislike the movie, but that backlash yeah, that it I would have no doubt mean. got would color it. I think like the you're fact right. that yeah. yeah, with the 20th anniversary of Gladiator, there was like all these think pieces about like was Gladiator like a really bad Best Picture winner? And it's like no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, but it's a very straightforward entertainment, so that invites cynical viewings once it's won sort of that kind of prestige. Exactly. No, I see. I see what you mean now. Yeah, because I think there is a lot to actually explore in 1917 that people may not notice. Mm-hmm. But it's it's moments like that, and there's there's also other things like I think the way that the different levels of seriousness with which uh, characters think of orders is, is another interesting idea that is explored in that movie. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're all really little ideas, but it's kind of like, I think that that's, it sort of captures what the experience might've been like for somebody. Cause they're, mm-hmm. they may not be going through every day thinking about the morality of war or anything like other films would explore, but they are going to think about like what the, well, this person's giving me an order, and, and what do I think of that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm put in this dire situation. What, you know, what is my choice going to be? Yeah, I think yeah. he does a really good job of that. And there's something else, too, to the way that the end of the film sort of, um, again, without spelling out what happens, somewhat undercuts the degree to which uh, the story is a heroic one. Um not that it dabbles in anything that's like super unethical at the end or anything, but it kind of questions just how valuable and how useful overall or what impact this moment, this sort of what the main characters accomplished by the end, how much that's really going to mean in the long run. And if it's going to have any long-term consequences, um, which I think is, it's a good subtle indicator as you point out that even though the film is not like, overtly about those things and they're all kind of as little asides they are there and the film is more thoughtful than just being a sort of roller coaster thrill ride yeah for sure that's mine 1917 Alrighty, i'll jump into my next pick this comes from 2019 a little movie by the name of uncut gems um so my moment it comes from the climax of the film where uh, the film is cutting from the uh, from Howie, uh, the main character played by Adam Sandler, having made some ludicrous bets on the basketball game and the game he's watching. And it's often cutting between Howie reacting to what's happening and Kevin Garnett just sinking baskets. And it's, so it's a big moment. It's like the crux of the finale. 
But what I'm specifically responding to is at one point in this montage, as it's cutting back and forth, one of the baskets that Kevin Garnett sinks, when I saw the film in theaters, I like instinctively in my seat just did a fist pump as if I was watching an actual basketball game <laughs> and the team I was rooting for had scored. And I remember my girlfriend giving me this look like, what are you doing? And it's like, I don't know. <laughs> so um, I wanted to highlight this for two reasons. One, anytime a movie can make you look like a complete idiot is probably worth, uh, I don't know, dwelling on. But also, I think it's worth thinking about when movies get physical reactions out of us. Because usually when we talk about that, it's in the context of like making us cry, making us laugh. Right. Sometimes making us like sort of jump if it's like a horror movie moment. But usually there's like very sort of, there's a sort of list of like common physical reactions to movies. It's very rare that you actually like fist pump and like, and not in a sort of performative way like I'm filming a YouTube reaction. Like no one's <laughs> watching me. It was totally genuine. Um, and that also got me thinking about how how well the film had its hooks in me. Not just that I was so involved in the moment that I reacted physically, but that intellectually I can look at the story and understand, Howie, my man, you're making really bad bets and you're making really dumb choices and jeopardizing your life and your family for no reason and you should stop. And yet have so much fun uh, vicariously living through those exploits that I can be physically giddy at a moment of triumph and success. And I'm also just a fan in general of whenever movies can sort of position you intellectually so that you know you feel one way about an issue and yet emotionally you're still having fun with that journey. And it kind of dramatizes that divide, not within the story, but within you as a viewer. And I think that this uh, moment really in a sort of simple physical way embodies that. And of course, based on how the movie ends, it just adds all that much more dramatic oomph that I was this invested. Right. So, yeah. yeah, I'm trying to think now. I'm trying to think of movies that actually made me fist pump. <laughs> I don't have any that are coming to mind right now. But it, that it's was pretty uh, rare. Yeah, but no, that was definitely a highlight of that movie. Was was that was that game for sure? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's it's interesting because you would you would associate something like that with a sports movie, and this isn't a sports movie. Mm -hmm. But but it has that element, and you have the investment of the character that mm -hmm. that invests you into it as well. That's a good point That's too. Awesome. I can't think of any really sports movies that have got me to react like that degree. Uh, not that I there's probably examples where I've been invested in you know the final play as it were, but never in terms of like that much on the edge of my seat and uh, that much that I'm like making a fool of myself. So yeah. Other than maybe actual sports, but yes, yeah, actual sports. Maybe it's because it was like the Sydney year after, Crosby. like, yeah, it was the year after the Raptors had done really well, yeah. and uh, I became a Fairweather fan. Um, so it was like I don't know, <laughs> I was tapping into those instincts uh, <laughs> shortly after. But yeah, um, I love the film in general, and I think that I remember like actually consciously noting to in the theater like okay yeah this is like any doubts i had that this was one of the best movies of the year are gone because like i didn't react like that to anything else this year that is a good point yeah uncut right. gems yeah I, that is a if you if anyone here hasn't seen that movie it's it's a tense one like it just keeps moving and moving and moving and mm -hmm. yeah pulse pounding i had a friend had to leave the theater oh um, yeah well, i think they're also like 
so they were like, I used to work at like an auction <clears throat> earring place, so that was giving me stressful flashbacks. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, that's fair. Well, when it starts off, it is pretty disorienting, right? You got the mm-hmm. like the background music going along with the visuals. I was actually pretty thrown off. I was I was really worried when I started out the movie that it, it would turn me off all that stuff. Mm. But it does find a rhythm, I think, pretty quickly that that it follows through that I think is commendable. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, good pick. Thank you. I'll let you take it away with what will be our most controversial pick <laughs> of the episode. Yeah, because we're going back to 1917 and we're talking about the last... To 2017. <laughs> Did I say 1917? You said 1917. Oh my goodness. We're talking about our favorite Uh. Charlie Chaplin shorts. Okay, 2017. 1917. Okay, we're going through, we're going to The Last Jedi. So I am a huge Star Wars fan. I've, I've been a Star Wars nerd for pretty much my whole life. And Last Jedi, I I decided to pick a moment. Because there's so many moments I could talk about with Last Jedi. But I decided to pick a moment that's going to make me nostalgic for theaters. Do you remember theaters, Dan? Vaguely. <laughs> Do you remember how I was that one more that recently was? than I should probably admit? But <laughs> <laughs> So, in The Last Jedi, I'm going to talk about the hyperspace attack. And this is a moment in the movie where the rebels are trying to get away and things seem desperate like this is the point where everything seems really desperate so main characters have been captured um the ships are being hunted down one by one by the by the enemy star destroyers and their giant massive ship that's chasing them down and everybody's being sent to this they're evacuating to this planet nearby and uh the one commander holdo who's played by laura dern with some really wacky purple hair which i'm not really a fan of the purple hair but that's okay anyway it's it's kind of like oh what can we do to make her seem like she just stands out well let's mm-hmm. give her purple hair but anyway yeah i guess when previous admirals have been like fishmen yeah it's like oh we just have a person do we have any funky haircuts we can give them yeah pretty much <laughs> anyway she's the only one left on the ship she's, she's kind of like doing the captain goes down with the ship idea and then she kind of surprises everybody because she starts turning the ship around and people are thinking, oh, she's running away. She's abandoning everybody. And then she hits, hits light speed directly for the enemy ships, which just cuts through the giant ship and like destroys a whole bunch of the smaller ships all at once. And when this moment happens, when you're watching this in the movie theater, it was it's interesting the way it was filmed because it's stark black except for the few ships that you can see and then there's a silver streak that runs through them and then everything just goes dead quiet and then suddenly you just get that boom but it's it's quiet for a few seconds and it's mm-hmm. just so gripping when you're when you're watching it in the movie theater I don't think the at-home experience quite captures what that was like, but that was like a, a wow moment. Even for a Star Wars movie where we're, we're used to most of these things happening, 
even in universe, this is something that was new, right? You got the idea that nobody had ever actually tried this I, this thing before, this sacrificing your, yourself and your ship to hyperspace through an enemy ship. And so even in universe, it was brand new. But for us, it was a new moment in Star Wars, which is exciting, mm-hmm. right? Every, every time I see that, see something new given to me in, in a franchise I'm so familiar with, it, yeah, it's... It's fist pumping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to go back to your other point, it really is. I love picturing you in the theater like, yes, fist pumping <laughs> at that scene. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that it was uh, something new in Star Wars because, and I don't want to dwell too much on like the online reaction to this movie because we'll be here for the next 30 days. But um, one of the things I found so disappointing is when people would call that out as like a plot hole or a mistake because, uh. well, why didn't they just do that for the Death Star and... Why not this? Why not that? How come it's not used more often? Well, one, it's a literal suicide mission. Yeah, you try exactly. to avoid, you know, planning those too regularly. But two, you have this moment of like that's so visually beautiful and so auditorily uh, stunning, and like especially in the theater, and it gives us a visual in a universe that has largely been built on repeating the same iconographic elements mm-hmm. since the. You know, since the first two films, to give us something so new and to be like a plot hole is just like, like an absurd, yeah, like primal missing of the forest for the trees that Absolutely. like hurts when you think about it. It does. It, it it makes me sad when people can't just appreciate and enjoy a moment like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and honestly, I you know what, Dan, I feel like a lot of people that have those complaints, they probably did feel that when they watched it. Sure. It was as probably an afterthought where they're thinking too much about it after. That's mm-hmm. my. That's what I suspect anyway. But yeah, and if you hate the film and you're just looking for things mm-hmm. to pick at, you'll find right. you know a million things. Yeah, um, it's interesting that you highlight that as a, a little moment because it's kind of a little moment within a huge moment because that whole section of the film is like is in many ways the high point of the film mm-hmm. in total. Um, the complete collapse of uh, Finn and Poe and um, uh, Rose's plan, uh, which also has one of my favorite little moments uh, in the film, is when DJ, the Benicio del Toro character, betrays the group and uh, talks about, you know, the the sort of cycle between the sort of rebellion and the Empire goes on and on and on. It's dumb to pick a side. You just try to survive. And uh, Finn says, you're wrong. And DJ turns around and just says... Maybe. And he's like the way Benicio del Toro is such a great actor that there's like no malice in that. There's no defiance. Yeah. It's a very honest, yeah, maybe you're right. I'm, I don't know. I'm just trying to get through this wacky space universe we all live in. Um, anyway, and so, yeah, I just wanted to geek out at that, that moment briefly. Yeah, no, but that's, uh, that's a good point. Yeah, because it is, it is at the high point of the moment because it is where their plans fall apart. It's at mm-hmm. the emotional height of... Uh, ray and kylo ren and it's at the, the like the desperate hour of of the rebels right and, mm-hmm. and then princess leia and trying to get away and yeah mm-hmm. yeah and it's this this one little moment. moment of like i mean a and it also works because it is the one sort of bright spot of hope for our heroes in that scene um, right. even if it comes at a cost and so the fact that it's this moment that's both harrowing but also really beautiful i think is really appropriate yeah, I think there's uh, something to be said about those moments too, right? When you, because if you put 
your characters in dire situations and you think where how are they going to get out and you give them even even though they're not they're definitely not out of the woods at that point there's still lots that has to happen but mm-hmm. it does give them the hey something good happened here mm-hmm. it, it's kind of like the elves showing up in helm's deep right yeah 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 that like brief reprieve yeah cool i mean it's last jedi is also like especially in terms of big blockbusters is unique in that it is it has a lot of these little moments it's by design yeah it's much more uh it's much less eager to sort of indulge in like big set pieces it definitely has them but it does have a lot of quieter reserved character beats there's a ton with luke um i like the one you point out here though and yeah like just going back to again like something new in star wars which i think is what a lot of us were worried that the disney era of star wars wouldn't give us at all and this is a good embodiment of that it did at points and especially in this film yeah this will not be the last that i talk about last jedi (laughs) that's that's all i'm gonna say (laughs) cool so any chance i have to come back to it we'll come back to it (laughs) so if you absolutely hate that movie this might be your last episode with us (laughs) (laughs) sorry yeah Oh, well. Um, cool. Uh, I guess I'll jump into my last moment for the week then. You bet. Uh, this, so this comes from The Irishman, which is another film that I've talked about like a lot. Um, I think people who maybe know me from either just real life or from the YouTube channel uh, know that I really love this film. Um, and there's a lot that I could talk about here in terms of like the ways in which the film is really like this reflection on uh aging and dying and coming to the end of your life and wondering what it all meant and if you made the right choices or not but i wanted to choose something lighter because for all the ways that the film is quite uh upsetting at times to watch and like rich with a lot of drama i think it's also really funny and i think scorsese often does have this really fun sense of humor so um my moment comes from the scene where uh, it's the first time that um, Frank is meeting Jimmy Hoffa in person, and there's a there's another character there who works for Jimmy, and uh, Frank has been brought in to deal with a dispute with a bunch of cab drivers, and they've you know successfully dealt with that, and now they're meeting with Jimmy, and this other guy is like, okay, Jimmy hates drinking, and he doesn't want people drinking around him, so they've loaded up a bunch of vodka into this watermelon, because Jimmy also hates watermelon, so <laughs> we can get plastered and he won't notice, but... Um, So they cut to the scene of the three men together and Frank and Jimmy are largely quiet and it's just this guy just getting drunk on this vodka-infused watermelon telling the story of Frank um, basically controlling the scene and getting all these people to uh, to do his bidding. And it's really important and there's a lot of really subtle stuff that Scorsese captures between Pacino and De Niro that shows the beginnings of how important they're going to become for each other. Uh, but what really <laughs> I come back to in this scene is as he's telling the story, this guy's talking about, you know, he's never seen people just move out of someone's way. Like De Niro doesn't even need to say anything. People are just moving left and right. And he starts com- to compare it to Moses parting the Red Sea in the Bible. But the way he tells the story is he says, and you're going to have to forgive my very poor impression here, but it's like Moses. Remember Moses? He's going to the sea or the ocean or whatever. And it's, and like <laughs> one that's hilariously funny but two it's such a specific detail to a certain type of person and how they would talk about 
you know, the Bible, like it wouldn't be this really refined, like, or even not even just refined, just an accurate summary of what happens. It would have this sort of streetwise edge to it. And I love that about Scorsese and this film in particular that, um, he really, and he doesn't write his scripts all the time. So part of it is he chooses good material, but I think part of it is how he directs his actors. He has a good sense of how people sound. The sounds really honest to me. This sounds like something I could almost picture like one of my uncles saying. Um, and I think the other thing, and this is kind of just a stray observation, but it reminds me a lot of The Last Temptation of Christ, not because it's quite as, uh, I don't know, uh, <laughs> spiritual, but um, in that film, Scorsese didn't have people talk in accents or as if they were making, you know, Ben-Hur, like this period piece set in a distant past. Everyone talks about, everyone talks like, you and I talk and he talks about how he didn't want it to sound like something from an old book. He wanted it to sound like the people in the streets and how they talk. And in its own little way, I think this moment captures that spirit too. And again, it's just so funny to me. <laughs> so that's my moment. No, that's a good one. Yeah. I, uh, I didn't remember. I, I saw you wrote it in the notes. And I could not remember what, <laughs> what it was you were talking about. Yeah. Well, that's good. It probably and, helps that this is a film I've, like, obsessed over and watched multiple times, so you pick up on those things. It's a, and it's just funny. It's like, remember Moses? You're like, you remember one of the most well-told stories of all time? You remember that? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. And, and the delivery, like, he's he's also standing up, and he's, a, we'll say, a little bit of a heavier gentleman. So as he's standing, he's like, and he's got, you know, vodka-infused watermelon in his mouth. So it's like, <laughs> he's kind of straining just to get the words out in a way. Oh, it's it's so good. It just feels so like honest, and again, it's just so funny. Yeah. So that's uh, two episodes now, and two Martin Scorsese films from Dan. Yes, <laughs> and since I won't spoil it, but looking at well, maybe we'll say what it is, but looking at what we have set for next week, it's very possible there will be a Scorsese film for <laughs> next week's episode we too. Yeah. So. We'll have to I'm go back to I'm the not. 40s so that you, just to break the streak. <laughs> <laughs> or we'll go to the 40s and I'll pick something and be like, it reminds me a lot of in Taxi Driver when... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I'm trying to like, I'm scanning through your picks from both weeks now, trying to find some sort of gotcha connection I can throw back at you, but I don't think there is. Yeah, I think you time. chose, you chose with a lot more variety than I did. <laughs> so well done. All right. Well, those are some good some good picks from the late half of uh, our last decade. We were thinking of doing like a best of twenty twenty, but then we thought, well, those are kind of new movies, right? And mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of hard to you, you need to sit with these things a little bit, I think, for those moments to sometimes mm -hmm. not or like like I guess I guess we both picked moments that we knew were moments immediately, I suppose. Like your yeah. uh, uncut my gems, first two your in particular, thread. yeah. yeah. Yeah, my last Jedi would be one I would say. But Your nineteen seventeen one definitely wasn't though. That no, was a no. That was a have to have to rewatch again and pick mm. it out. Yeah. Well, something else about doing twenty twenty films is the again the spoiler concerns, and especially this year because so like I still haven't seen Nomadland, for example, and it's wild to think that at this point I haven't seen the front runner for Best Picture. That hasn't happened yeah. since I was like. 14 maybe yeah like it's a weird year mm -hmm. so like there's i was thinking immediately when i saw a promising young woman there was a moment where i'm like oh i could do that for a small moment but it's so 
like I would not want to spoil that for people. Right. So yeah, so we're not doing 2010s next week or 2020 rather. No, next week <laughs> we're gonna move on. Should we tell people what we're doing to get them hyped, or should we save it? Um, yeah, let's do it. Okay. So, yeah, so we're gonna be looking at we're gonna take a a trip to the past a little bit because we've been sticking pretty recent with our first two episodes. So we're going back to the 70s. We're gonna look at the early films of the or the films of the early 70s next week, which there's a lot there to pick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's probably like one of the most rich eras in, I mean, certainly in American filmmaking. And I think it's also one that you and I both have a lot of favorites from. Right. So, yeah. um, and possibly a lot of overlapping favorites. We might be fighting about which one of us can talk about The Exorcist. So <laughs> Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, but All that'll right. be next week. And I think it'll be a fun show. You betcha. Okay. Well, thanks for listening to everybody. Um, once again, I'm Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we'll see you next time.